All right, good to see you folks today. Glad to be over here with you at Vintage Church. And uh, take your Bibles and turn to Psalm 19. We're going to be looking at that today. And, of course, uh, it's uh, great to, to be here and be with uh, Brother Bryce. And Brother Bryce, just a wonderful, delightful fellow. And uh, I know he's doing a great job, and you're blessed to have him over here as your pastor. And, of course, you know, his dad's a pretty good guy, too. And, of course, his wife, of course, you know, you know and the kids, these beautiful kids and all that sort of thing. Yeah, look, yeah, I looked after, took it after Bruce. No, no, I took it after Anna. Was, <laughs> but, uh, but it is good to see you folks at Vintage Church. You know, I want you to know that every Wednesday night at Boulevard, we pray for you. And so we mention your name every Wednesday night. We pray for Vintage Church. We love you. We feel like you're part of us at Boulevard. And so we're so glad to, uh, to again, that uh, you're doing so well. And, again, good to be here with you. And uh, we look forward to having you with us in August. And so that's going to be exciting. And I think it will be an encouragement to Boulevard to see, you know, what, what God has wrought out here. All right. Well, today I want to talk to you about the Bible from this wonderful psalm. And uh, what I want to do, the focus is uh, what the Bible will do for you. What the Bible will do for you. So we're going to be looking at that. Of course, the Bible is the greatest book ever written. It is the most influential book in all of history. Really, I don't think any debate about uh, about that. Uh, The Bible is the most translated book in the world. You know, there are about 7,000 languages in the world today. And uh, all but 1,600 have been translated or at least are being translated into the the Bible. Uh, All of it or at least part of it right now. And so... Praise the Lord for that. And the Wycliffe Bible translators, praise the Lord for them and other groups that do that. And, and so just uh, <clears throat> do a, a wonderful work. And what's interesting is that of those 1,600 languages, and they believe that, I read somewhere that they believe that they can get that all done. And I better take my phone out and look at the time here, you know. So, uh, yeah. Now, I hear, I hear Brother Bryce preaches two hours every Sunday, but I, I, I'm going to do that, you know. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. But, uh, but, <clears throat> but they, I've read somewhere that they believe they can get the rest of those done in the next five or ten years. And, you know, I think that's pretty significant because, you know, Jesus said when the gospel of this kingdom is preached to all the world, that it, it will be preached to all the world, and then the end will come. So I think that's an indication that we're living in the last days. And nobody knows when it's going to be, but I, I think a lot of things indicate uh, that to us. And so the bad news is that all the Bible is not in everybody's language. But here's the good news. Those 1,600 languages only represent about 110 million people on earth. So what that means of the approximately 7.5 billion people on earth, 7.4 billion people uh, have the Bible in a language that, that they can read. So praise the Lord for, for that. And then the Bible is not only the uh, most translated book in the world, it is the best-selling book in all of history. 
It's a best-selling book every year. I had a friend who uh, worked for Barnes and Nobles, and he said that uh, far and away, the best-selling book, when you put all the different translations together, and there's a zillion translations nowadays, of course, but when you put them all together, that the Bible is Barnes and Noble's best-selling book, just no, no question. The Bible, according to Guinness Book of World Records, has sold over 5 billion copies. But, you know, really, even that may be kind of off because one study that I saw said that 5 billion Bibles were printed between 1815 and 1975. And so how many before... Uh, you know, 1815, you know, there'd be hundreds of millions, I would think, in that period of time. And by the way, do you know the first book ever printed? Mr. Gutenberg, that's right, invented the printing press. The first major book he ever printed was the Bible, the Gutenberg Bible in 14, uh, about 50s, 1450s. And so, the Bible's been around a long time. And, you know, since 1975, I, I have a feeling at least a billion Bibles have been, been uh, printed and put, put out there. So it is, it is the best-selling book <clears throat> in history. <clears throat> it is the greatest book. And, of course, the reason the Bible is the greatest book <clears throat> is because it has the greatest author. Now, we know that uh, God used people to write the Bible uh, and he used their personality and their writing style and, and so forth. But we know that the guiding force, the, the guiding person behind uh, all of those books, of course, was God, the Holy Spirit. In Second Peter, uh, Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16, the Scripture says that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. And I think you've heard before that that phrase, is given by inspiration of God, is really one word in the original language is simply the word, a Greek word, theonoustos, uh, which uh, has two parts. It's from theos, which is God, and then noustos, which is uh, the word for breathe. You know, you have a pneumonia, you've got a breathing problem. So it comes from that. So literally, what Paul is saying is that all Scripture is breathed out from God. In other words, the Bible is just as much God's Word as if He stood here where I'm standing and spoke it to you as, as if He breathed it out Himself. And so the Bible is the Word of God. Now, you know, some people wonder, is the Bible relevant to us today? You know, I, before I was called to preach, <clears throat> I worked uh, at a couple of places uh, after college. And uh, one place I worked was across from the Peabody Hotel. I worked there in the accounting department and also in the, the desk and uh, did <clears throat> some of that. And the, I remember having uh, uh, lunch with the assistant manager there of the hotel one day. And, and we were talking. And he said, you know, he said, I think the Bible was okay for people back, you know, 2,000 years ago. Uh, but he said, I just think we moved beyond the Bible. The Bible is just not relevant to people anymore. And, you know, he wasn't trying to be mean. He was not trying to be argumentative. That's just what he kind of thought. That's just what he had sort of been led to, to believe. But, you know, the problem with that type of thinking is that human nature do doesn't change. Now, you know, people may wear different clothes uh, today or drive cars rather than riding on uh, horses or camels or whatever. But uh, basically, in the heart, people are still the same 
throughout the ages. We still have the same problems, desires, temptations as Adam, Noah, Abraham. We're tempted to hate, to be bitter, to be unforgiving, like Esau hated his brother Jacob. You know anybody has a problem with bitterness or unforgiveness? Well, you know, I mean, we have that today. People have to fight it today. People are still tempted to doubt, like doubting Thomas, to fear, like Peter. You know, Peter was afraid to stand up for Jesus. You ever have that problem? Maybe you're a little fearful to really stand up for the Lord when you need to. And then <clears throat> people are tempted to cheat, uh, like Zacchaeus. Uh, you know, the IRS is... I heard somewhere they check about <clears throat> one out of every 100 tax returns. And, you know, they do that because some people make mistakes. You know, I've made mistakes uh, before on my uh, tax return. But some people just cheat, you know. <laughs> and so you, you got to check. It's still around. And then people today <clears throat> still rebel against God like the prodigal son. And so the Bible is relevant because it addresses all of the issues of life and the problems of life which have never changed and never will. It deals with the matters of the heart, the matters of the heart. You know, people talk about the relevance of, of the Bible. Folks, uh, listen, I, I want to tell you, is the Bible relevant? Absolutely. I want to tell you, the message of salvation through Jesus Christ is our world's only hope. It is the only hope for anybody anywhere. It is the only hope for people in Russia, in China, in South America, in Africa, in New York City, in Memphis, Tennessee, in Horn Lake, and wherever, wherever you live. And so this is, this, is, this is it. It is absolutely relevant. You know, the Bible's a great book, but it's not just one book. It's a whole library of books, 66 of them. It is made up of law, history, and, you know, my son-in-law's a lawyer, and, <clears throat> uh, you know, I've, I've seen in the heard, you know, read uh, the figures or whatever, but so many of our laws in our country, at least at the founding of it, really were dependent on the Bible. So many of the, the, the laws that we had were dependent on the law and the Bible. But the Bible's made up of, of law, of history, of poetry, prophecy, letters, and, and on and on. And the Bible really is the greatest literature. You know, I think uh, even an atheist ought to read the Bible. It's just great literature. It's an influential book. I don't know why things work the way they do, why people have done the way they, what they've done, why societies have uh, behaved the way they have. It's because they've been influenced by the Bible throughout the last 2,000 years. So great, great literature. You know, Shakespeare is great. I'm sure all of you read a sonnet every night before you go to bed, but, uh, but you know, nothing in Shakespeare any greater than Psalm 23 or Psalm 19, which we're going to be looking at t today. And, you know, it's very interesting. Uh, Shakespeare was alive when the King James Version came out. Some think that, that he had a hand in the style. He worked for King James, as a matter of fact. He was in his service. So maybe he helped to put the style of the King James into its beautiful form. But the Bible is many things, but most importantly, the Bible is a book for, for living. And so, why should we read the Bible? Well, I want us to look at several things that the Bible will do for you. You know, we live in the me generation. Uh, people want to know, what do I get out of it? What, what will this do for me? 
So what will reading the Word of God and studying the Word of God, the Bible, what will that do for anybody, anywhere, no matter where they live or who they are, at any time in history? At, at any time. What, what will the Bible do for us? Well, I want you to see five things, and our focal passage will be Psalm 19, verses 7 through 9. Now, I'm going to give you an overview of the psalm, but we're going to concentrate on those three verses this morning. And as we look at that, we're going to see six names for the Bible, and we're going to see six descriptions of the Bible here in these verses. And let me give you an overview of the psalm, you know, the teacher in, in me. Uh, and so Psalm 19 uh, was written by David, King David, the guy killed the giant, you know, uh, Psalm of David to the chief musician. So this was sung, and appreciate the music, by the way. Brother Blake and the group did a great job. I enjoyed that very, very much. And uh, <clears throat> good, good musicians. Guy did a great, great job. But David wrote this 3,000 years ago. So you know what's so interesting? We're looking at, a, at something that was written 3,000 years ago. I mean, 1,000 years before Jesus Christ was, was born. So that, that just sort of blows my mind whenever I, I think about it. And, and this, this psalm is one of what we call the wisdom psalms. It's part of wisdom literature. And what wisdom literature is in the Bible is it is a book. There are wisdom books, but then there are wisdom individual passages of psalms and so forth that are wisdom material and what they do, they provide wisdom or, or insight about a particular issue or, or theme. For example, Job is a wisdom book, and it gives us wisdom on the matter of suffering. Why do people suffer? Why is there suffering in the world? And uh, why did Job suffer? He was a good guy. He did a lot of good things. So why, why is there suffering? So Job deals with that. Ecclesiastes deals with the meaning of life. Well, what is life all about? Why are you here? What's your purpose? You know, why do all these things happen in life? And so it, it's a wonderful, wonderful book. Proverbs is a wisdom book, but it's more practical. It's sort of a practical wisdom book. It's a book on everyday uh, Christian living. And, and so a, a great, great book to study, just practical advice about how to live your life on a day-to-day Basis. Well, there are psalms like that. There are eight of them, and this is one of those psalms. And in this psalm, the theme is revelation. Revelation. Here, David tells us how God reveals himself to the human race. See, God is in heaven, and we know that God is spirit, is everywhere, but God wants to reveal himself to the human race. He wants people to know him. He wants people to know things about him. And he wants people to come to know him in a personal way. So how does God reveal himself to the human race? We see that in this psalm. Now, we can divide this psalm into three parts. First, in verses 1 through 6, we see that God reveals himself through nature, as Brother Blake mentioned, or, or creation. So, God reveals himself through the created order. 
And we call this general revelation. In verse 1, it says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows His handiwork. In other words, the heaven, the sun, the moons, the, the stars, they declare the glory of God, the firmament. Another word for the, the heavens and so forth. The, the, the celestial beings and the earth and so are uh, things uh, shows his handiwork that shows that there is a God who made all of, of that. And so God reveals the fact that he is through the creation. You know, there are some people who <clears throat> deny, uh, you know, that there is a God. And what's interesting about the Bible is the Bible never tries to prove the existence of God. The Bible simply assumes the existence of God, and it assumes that anyone that does give evidence for God, but doesn't, you know, set out with a case to try to prove it. But, but it assumes that anyone with any kind of a sensitivity or really uh, reasonable uh, outlook will, will know that all of these things, this whole creation, the sun, moon, stars, this vast universe, and all that we see here on planet Earth and everything, all of that just didn't happen, but there is a God who made them. And what is in, what's interesting here in verse 2 it says, day unto day utter speech. That is, when the sun comes up in the morning and it goes streaking across the sky, it goes to every place on earth, and what it is saying as it goes across this planet, around this, or the planet goes around it, but it looks like we're going around. As it, as it goes streaking through the sky, it is saying, there is a God who made me. There is a God out there. And then it says, night unto night reveals knowledge. It is the knowledge of God. Uh, when the sun goes down and, the, and the, the, the moon and the stars come out, those moon and stars, they are a silent witness, and yet they speak loudly and they speak clearly, and they say, there is a God. There is someone who made, made us. And, you know, um, there is no reasonable explanation for the universe and for creation except for God, except for Creator. Mortimer Adler was one of the greatest philosophers of the 20th century, and he said this. He said, the fact that there is something, and he wasn't a Christian at the time he said this. I don't know if he became a Christian before he died or not. I hope that he did. But he said this. He said that the fact that there is something rather than nothing proves philosophically there is a God. And David Berensky, a Ph.D. from Princeton, a great scientist, uh, says simply that, that phys physicists have no reasonable explanation for the origins of the universe. So don't let anybody kid you. <laughs> you know, it takes more faith, as Geisler says in one of his books, with the title of it, I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. It takes far more faith to be an atheist and not believe than it does to, to believe, and you've heard before, to look at the universe and claim to be an atheist is like the, saying you believe in Ford cars but not a Ford, Ford factory. And so we see that, that the, the, the creation, the created order, reveals the fact that there is a creator, that there is a God. And so it tells everybody on earth, anywhere, no excuse for not believing that there is a God. It also reveals the glory of God. It reveals the greatness of God, the power of God. You know, there are trillions upon trillions of stars out there. Our universe 
is beyond our comprehension. I mean, absolutely. And our sun is just a small star in, in the midst of this gigantic, enormous uh, universe. And yet, the Scripture says that God calls every star by name. God knows them all. God made that. And to think, if, if God can do that, he must indeed be, as the song says, an awesome God. So, creation, uh, general creation, the created order, reveal, reveals the fact that there is, a, there is a creator and that he is an awesome, awesome being. So, that's what we see in verses 1 through, through 6. But then the second part of this psalm, it, verses 7 through 11, deals with uh, special revelation. It reveals revelation through the Word, the Word of God. And I think something's very interesting here. When you look uh, at the, <clears throat> the change of names in verse 7 and, and from verse 1, in verse 1 it says, The heavens declare the glory of God. Now that word in the original Hebrew, is, as Brother Bryce knows because he was in my Hebrew class, but that word in the original is the word El, E-L. And it comes from a word that means mighty, strong, a verb. So it's, a, it's the mighty one, the strong one. And so <clears throat> creation, the created order, reveals that our God must, is real, that there is one, and that he must be a mighty being, a powerful being, incredibly powerful person. And by the way, when you see names in the, in the Bible, in the Old Testament, that have that E-L on the end, normally that's God. So, Daniel, Daniel is God, is my judge. Ezekiel, E-L, is uh, God will strengthen Ezekiel. And Ezekiel needed strength to face those terrible people he had to preach to. But, but uh, so, th- that. But notice in verse 7, he doesn't use the word just God, a general term, L, but it is the law of the Lord is perfect. So notice a different name. Now that word Lord there, notice it's in all capital letters in your translation, and that it represents the word Jehovah more correctly, Yahweh. And so the word Yahweh, now that's a personal name. It's like Jesus. It's not just a generic, but it is a personal name. And so I think David's point, I think it's deliberate, is this. We can know that there is a God just from the created order. And we can know that he is an amazing, almighty being just from the created order. But, but we cannot know him in a personal way except through special revelation, and that is through the Word of God. And that's why missionaries and others have to go and share the gospel. That's why we can't say someone can just look up at the sun and say, well, you know, there must be a God. I'm saved. Uh, because someone said, a very brilliant guy, Roger Nicole, made a, made a comment one time at a conference that I heard that I thought was very good. Uh, he said that <clears throat> when missionaries get to where they're going, they never find saved people already there. Now, they, may, they don't. They may find people who are open, people who are, who, who are uh, uh, acting on the the revelation, they have the general revelation, and God gives them that special revelation, but they're not already saved. They need the Word of God, and that's why we need to get the Word of God out to, to, to people and why we need to share 
the, the Word of God with others. And so, special revelation. That's how we come to know God personally. And then the psalm ends, verses 12 through 14, with our response to this revelation of God. Now, listen. Since God is, <clears throat> since God is so powerful, since uh, God is holy, and since someday all of us are going to give an account to this God, then how should we then live? And so David concludes with that. And what David tells us in verses 12 through 13, we should be holy in the way we live, in our actions, because someday we'll give an account of those actions. And then in verse 14, which uh, read this verse already, but in verse 14 it says we need to be holy in what we say and what we think. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord. My strength are literally rock and my redeemer. And so God is out there. He reveals himself through creation. He reveals himself through the word of God. And we need to act on that and behave accordingly. Be ready to meet God. Now, <clears throat> I want us to look at verses 7 through 9. And here I want you to see five things that God will do for you. And uh, the Word of God. God will do through you, for you through the Word of God as you study it. Okay? And there are different ways to approach uh, these verses, but this is what I'm going to use this morning. Number one, <clears throat> uh, and I seriously, you know, I will be out of here by 1 o'clock. Now, <clears throat> the first thing I want to share with you is this. The Bible converts the soul or revives the soul. You see different translations here. The law of the Lord is perfect converting or reviving or restoring. You see it different translations. The, the soul. Now, the first thing we see is the name of the Bible. Notice the name of Scripture here. It's law. You know, the Bible is not just a book of good advice. You know, there are a lot of people who think that. You know, I take a little of that and, you know, cafeteria plan. A little of that, a little of this, but, you know, I don't want this. You know, but, but it's not that. The whole thing, it is God's law to, to us, and uh, those who break it are criminals and will deal someday with the heavenly judge. And it's described here as being perfect. So the law of the Lord is perfect. That is perfect, complete in every way. It's perfectly true. It's perfectly good. It's a perfect guide uh, for faith and practice in our day-to-day -day lives. The, the Bible is perfect. Now, what does this perfect law do for you? You see, David believed the law was perfect. The Word of God was perfect. He believed in inerrancy 3,000 years ago. This perfect law will convert your soul or revive, strengthen, restore, uh, again, whatever your translation may say. Literally, the word in the original language is the word to return. It returns the soul. Uh, so it, it uh, uh, can restore or revive the soul in the sense that you are maybe spiritually, emotionally drained, and the Word of God gives you new strength. And so it certainly restores your soul in that sense. It revives your soul. The King James and New King James, but converting the soul. And I don't know exactly what they had in mind, if they meant spiritual conversion, salvation, but certainly God does use the Word of God in salvation. Uh, when people were saved, it is because God, the Holy Spirit, took the Word of God, and He used the Word of God to convict us of our sins 
and to bring us to faith in Christ. Faith comes by hearing and hearing the Word of God. And if we want to see people saved, we need to use the Word of God. It is the Holy Spirit's tool that He uses to convict, to open their heart and open their eyes to the truth in their situation. So use the, the Word of God as you share with people about Christ. And they say, well, what if they don't believe the Bible? What if they're an atheist? Well, use it anyway. And I remember Bill Bright telling this story years ago. He was going to <clears throat> speak to some Christians, a Christian group at the University of California at Berkeley, you know, one of the most liberal schools in the world, and it was back then. But he was going to speak to this Christian group, and they said, well, uh, Mr. Bright, uh, and by the way, he was founder of Campus Crusade for Christ, one of the greatest soul winners who ever lived. But, but Bill Bright was going there, and they said, would you speak, uh, talk to this young man? He's an atheist. He's a philosophy student. We just can't get through to him. You know, we've shared with him. And so maybe, maybe he'll listen to you. So they met, and um, this young man came back with his, came off with his philosophy why there couldn't be a God and Jesus couldn't be who he claimed to be and so forth. And then when he finished, Bill Bright just shared with him, began to share the Scripture, you know, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son, and shared verses about our sinful condition, and, and so he began to share the gospel with him. And then this young man, when it's his turn, he continued with his philosophy, the Bill Bright Scriptures, Young man philosophy, Bill Bright's scriptures. Finally, Bill Bright said, we're not getting anywhere. Let's just go home. So they got in the car, and on the way home, Bill Bright was in the back seat. This young atheist was up in the front seat on the passenger side. One of the Christian students was driving the car. And about halfway home, Bill Bright said that young man turned and looked at him in the back seat. And with tears in his eyes, he said, Mr. Bright, he said, I want you to know that everything you said tonight touched my heart. He said, I want to be a Christian. Now, what was it that brought him to faith in Christ? Was it that Bill Bright just argued him down? No, he just shared the Scriptures. The Holy Spirit used it, and he opened this young man's eyes, and he revealed his condition, and it brought this person to Christ. And so, if we want to see people saved, we need to share the Word of God. We need to share the gospel message with them. And then, <clears throat> the second thing that the Bible will do for you is the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The, the Bible will give you wisdom. It will make you wise. Notice here God's testimony. God's testimony. This is what God has to say to us. You know, we think in a courtroom. Again, my son-in-law is a lawyer, and he calls people up there to the stand to give their testimony, what they have to say. Well, the Bible is what God has to say to and against the human race. And uh, someday, people will be judged according to what God has said in His Word. And then, His testimony is sure. And this word sure means sure to come to pass, sure to come true, constantly, continuously being con confirmed. In other words, what God has to say is going to happen. What I say may or may not be true, may not happen, but what God says in His Word is going to come true. Now, listen. There are positive and negative uh, connotations to that. For example, God says that sin brings consequences. Be sure your sin will find you out. People reap what they sow. People find out that works. That is true. Also, on the positive side, as believers, God promises uh, so many wonderful things to us. He said He'll supply our needs. 
And we can all stand up and give a testimony about how God has come through. He promises to give wisdom and do so many other things. But here in this context, the testimony of the Lord is sure to make you wise, to give you wisdom. If people want to have wisdom, true wisdom, they need to know the Word of God. Our worldview should be founded on the Word of God. And what is so disturbing is that so many Christians seem to compartmentalize their faith. They've got one, one you know, sort of a compartment uh, for uh, their maybe spiritual or their church or whatever. And then for everything else, you know, it's, the, the Bible is, it seems to be irrelevant to them. But that's wrong. Everything in our worldview, our view of politics, our view of uh, finances, our view, you name it, it ought to be governed by the Word of God. What does the Word of God say? It, is, it gives us wisdom. Not just how to be saved, but it gives us wisdom on every area of our life. And so the Bible is filled with wisdom. It is the best sociology book. If we want to know how to society to get along, I was a sociology minor in college, and I don't think we ever solved anything. We studied a lot of problems that didn't, didn't solve much that I know of. But if we want to know how society can get along, you need to study the Bible. The Bible says the problem is that we have a heart problem, and until that's solved, <clears throat> then we'll never have peace on earth. Best psychology book. Teaches us, you know, how to deal with things like uh, guilt and loneliness and sadness, inferiority, fear and anxiety and all of that. Uh, the Bible deals with all of those things. You know, psychology is study of the soul. The Bible's the best book on that. It's the best political science book. George Washington said, no man can adequately govern a nation without God and the Bible. Absolutely, uh, absolutely true. Do it, do it well. And it's not a science book, but it's accurate on scientific uh, matters where it speaks to those. And I saw an article that just came out in a secular uh, um, uh, 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 setting just recently. Very interesting, studying uh, DNA um, <clears throat> bands, studying DNA um, uh, types of over 100,000 different animals. These evolutionary scientists... One guy at the Rockefeller Center in New York, another uh, University of Basel in Switzerland, concluded two things that from researching the DNA, humans and virtually all life began at the same time. Very interesting. And said this is something that's just shocking. He's evolutionist because uh, that doesn't fit, you know, the common view of evolution. And then it said they concluded by studying the DNA that there are fixed boundaries between spe species and there's not, nothing in between, really. No missing links. And, of course, none have ever been found in the fossil record. But the Bible says that God did make things at the same time. And the, the Bible says that. And so the Bible, uh, I think, is, is accurate. And so it gives us wisdom in so many areas. So the Bible will make you wise. But who does it make wise? Well, it doesn't make everybody wise. It says here, making wise the simple. Making wise the simple. Now, this word simple is a word literally open. That's what it is. It makes wise the open one. That's, that's what it literally says. Now, sometimes this word for open is used for people who are naive uh, uh, and uh, people who maybe are mentally deficient in some way. But, uh, and I guess maybe a contemporary 
uh, expression would be an empty head or airhead or something of that, something of that nature. You know, maybe that's the idea. But, but I, I think here that I agree with those scholars who believe that the idea is an open one. The idea is someone who is open to truth. Someone who is open to, uh, to God's truth. Someone who is, is teachable. So it makes wise people who are open, who are willing to be taught. Uh, you know, sometimes, um, um, you know, people think that, uh, uh, you know, the, the uh, atheism and so forth is based on facts. So much of it is really not. Why are people atheists? It's because they want to be. They're not open to truth. There is abundant evidence for the fact that there is a God, as we've talked about, and the fact that Jesus Christ did exactly what the Bible said that he did. And I want to just remind you of this, and you can mark it down. Believing in God or being a Christian is never ultimately a head problem. Now, Nothing wrong with asking legitimate questions, but I want you to know there, there are answers to those questions. But, but ultimately, it is always a heart, a heart problem. And then I want you to see three. We'll hurry with these last three. I want you to see that the Bible will give you joy. Look in verse 8. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. God's statutes, God's moral principles, His rules of conduct are right. They put you on the right path. And if you stay on God's path, then you're going to have joy. And this, this is constant, continual joy. As long as you live the way God tells you to live, you're going to have joy in your life. So many people today who seem to have everything in the world are some of the most miserable people in the world. Hollywood actors, the wealthy, and so on. saw an article some time ago about Ben Affleck. It said, Ben Affleck, the saddest star in Hollywood. You know, man, this guy's made all these movies. He's got zillions of dollars. Why, you know, what's, what's going on with all these? So many people are, are, are miserable and unhappy because they don't have God, and they're not living for, for God. And then a fourth thing is this. We see in verse 8, the commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. God's commandments are pure, morally pure, and they enlighten the eyes. That is, literally, give light to the eyes. And the idea here is that the Word of God helps us to know what is right and what is wrong, what is good and what is best. You know, Josh McDowell wrote a book some years ago, called right and wrong. And one problem with our society today is not that people don't do right. It is that they've gotten so far from the Bible that many of them don't even know what right is. I was looking at a a survey in an article that came out not long ago. It said that 88% of people in America have a Bible. Only 37% of Americans read it once a week and what's really shocking, 26% of Americans never, adults, never read the Bible, and 39% of millennials never read the Bible. There's something wrong with that, and that's why people, again, make all kinds of foolish decisions. And then finally, last point is this. The Bible provides a foundation for life. In verse 
9. Now, how does it do that? It does it because the Bible is eternal, always has been around, always will be around. It is eternal truth. It is eternal truth. And you can build your life on what will last and what is absolutely <clears throat> true. Look in verse 9. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. That is, it's eternal. Now, notice the name for the Bible here, the fear of the Lord. Wow, sort of a scary thing, fear of the Lord. Uh, this is a, a name that's also used in Psalm 119 for the Bible as well. And by the way, Psalm 19, 7 through 11 is really just sort of a, uh, a miniature Psalm 119. So if you don't have time to read all 176 verses, read these for you. But because some of the same names, same descriptions for the Bible here. But the fear of the Lord, that is God's Word, is something that does call people, cause people to fear and to reverence God. And Mark Twain said this. He said, you know, it's not what I don't understand about the Bible that frightens me. It's what I do understand. And it is clean. It's morally clean, and it endures forever. People have tried to destroy the Bible, to stamp it out. Back in the second century, under a, a pagan king who ruled over Israel, uh, he tried to destroy the, the Scriptures, a penalty of death. If you even had a copy, well, you know, uh, they survived and he died. <laughs> and uh, in, in sort of a, a you know, strange, strange way, Voltaire, you know, in the Re French Revolution, Dist said that uh, Christianity would be wiped out, you know, in his lifetime or so, and the Bible, nobody would, you know, give any credence to it. Well, after he died, they took his, his uh, house, made a Bible publishing place out of it. He left, the Bible's still around, <clears throat> and it will always be here. Jesus said so. Heaven and earth will pass away, but the Word of God remains forever. And then the Bible is eternal, and it is true. It says in verse 9, The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. What God has said is true. It's true. Now, I know that there's some people today who deny all or parts of the Bible. I heard one time of this lady who was sitting on a train, and she was reading the Bible, and this guy, a skeptic, thought he'd have a little fun with her. So he asked her, said, uh, what are you reading? She said, the Bible. Said, uh, um, uh, do you, you believe all that? She said, I certainly do. Said, do you believe that part about Jonah being swallowed that big fish? She said, I certainly do. said, how do you explain that? said, well, I don't really know, uh, but uh, I'll ask Jonah when I get to heaven. And he, she, he said, well, what if Jonah's not in heaven? She said, well, you'll have to ask him yourself then. But, you know, but we know that there are people like that. But still, the Bible has proven itself true over and over again. It's proven itself true historically, archaeologically, on and on. And so the Bible is has demonstrated its truthfulness, and you see those who God blesses and churches and so forth are those who believe in the Word of God. So the Bible is true. You can depend on it. You can trust it. You can live by it. And it's also not just a book to live by, but it is a book to die by. And if you've done, when it comes time to die, if you've done what God said do in this book, in His Word, then you know you're going to heaven because God does not lie. It's a book to live by, book to die by. Some of you may have seen the Steve McQueen uh, documentary they showed at the Paradiso a few months ago or so last year, sometime in the last year, I think. But it was very good. <clears throat> Steve McQueen, in case you don't know who he is, was the biggest box office attraction in the 1970s. A huge uh, actor 
And uh, Steve McQueen, at the height of his popularity, just moved to a farm out in Colorado or somewhere out and just wanted to get away from Hollywood. And uh, people kept sending him all these scripts to read. And he came to a point to where he told them, look, I'm not even going to read a script unless you pay me $50,000. So, so he paid him $50,000 just to look at a script and say, I don't want to do it. But, uh, but he, he was a, a, a great actor, but he had a rough, rough life, one of the toughest guys, you know, in Hollywood. I mean, he grew up on the streets. He was a tough hombre. But uh, <clears throat> Steve McQueen bought a farm, and he was just going to retire and live out there and run a store or something and, and so forth. But, but he decided he wanted to fly an airplane. And he went to the, to the airport. He said, I want the best guy to teach me how to do it. Well, the best guy was this World War II, I think it was a fighter pilot or something. And he didn't want to teach him. He said, I'm too busy. I don't want to fool with it. He didn't know who Steve McQueen was and didn't really care. <laughs> this guy. And, but, but Steve McQueen kept pushing. And so this man and his son agreed to teach him how to fly a plane. Well, he began to admire this fellow and found out that this man was a Christian. And this guy invited him to come to his church one day. So Steve told his wife on Saturday night, said, get up tomorrow. We're going to church. She said in the thing she talks about, she said, I nearly had a heart attack. Where? We're going to church? Yeah, we're going to this little church here in this little town, and we're going, we're going to go with these, these people. And so Steve McQueen sneaked in, sat in the balcony, and he went a number of times, and then he wanted to meet with the pastor and talk to the pastor. And the pastor asked him, Steve, have you accepted Christ as your Savior? He said, yes, I did, and I did there sitting in the balcony one day. I gave my life to Christ, and it changed his life. He talks about that on the, in the video. Well, just sometime after that, he found out that he had cancer, and, of course, he had all the money in the world. He, he went special treatments and all of this, but nothing could cure it. But before he died, he was at the airport, I believe in Los Angeles, and he always wanted to meet Billy Graham. And Billy Graham was there and came on his plane and visited with him and prayed with him. And then before he left, he gave him his personal Bible. Well, Steve was just really impressed with that. He read that Bible. He took it to Mexico where he was doing special treatments. And he died down there in that treatment. It was a, a shock. Well, Miss McQueen called Billy Graham said, Mr. Graham, I just thought you'd like to know that Steve really appreciated the Bible that you gave him. He read that. And when he died, he died holding your Bible over his heart. And, you know, when I heard that, I thought, well, what a picture of someone dying, trusting in the promises of the Word of God. The Bible said, whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's what it said. And so, folks, I want you to know the Bible is a book to live by. It'll do a lot of good stuff for you, more than I mentioned this morning, but it's also a book to die by. Let's pray. Father, we love you. Thank you for these folks here today, and I pray that you'd bless them all and bless this church. And thank you for the privilege of being with them and sharing with them. In Christ's name, amen.